Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Megan. Hi, Matt. So today on iiPod, I'm really excited that we are talking with a woman who has done so much to increase our understanding of lemurs, especially the beloved ring-tailed lemurs that we're discussing this season. She's a longtime collaborator here at the Duke Lemur Center and is an emeritus professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. But she is really so much more than that title suggests. My name is Lori Godfrey. I'm a biological anthropologist. I'm also a primatologist and I'm also a paleontologist. And when you combine all three of those, you get primate paleontology. Oh, Madagascar lemur or primate paleontologist. How did a woman like Lori end up on such a fascinating track? (laughs) She says it started with her mom. She was sort of a mentor for me, a role model for me. My mother, who was born in 1925, got her PhD at the age of 30. I was 10 years old. She was a PhD in sociology. She was in a department of anthropology and sociology because very often sociology combined with anthropology. She was a token sociologist who was female. There was one anthropologist. He went on sabbatical and she was asked to teach his courses. She knew nothing about anthropology, not a thing about anthropology. And so into the house came a lot of books on anthropology, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeology. So the books on biological anthropology. And I saw this book by Louis Leakey, and it was called Adam's Ancestors. Written in 1934, Adam's Ancestors, The Evolution of Man and His Culture, was one of 20 books the famed paleontologist wrote in his lifetime. Leakey was known for the fossils he unearthed in continental Africa, as well as for extending our understanding of human evolution. I was very attracted to that book, and so I stole it. And I started reading it, and then... I reread it and I underlined some important things. And then I reread it again and underlined more important things. And then I reread it a third time. By this time, all of the book had been underlined. And I had decided at age 10 that I was going to be a biological anthropologist. and I was going to study human evolution. And I stuck with it. I really did. There are very few people who at age 10 know what they are going to do. But I was determined I was going to be a biological anthropologist. I was going to study human evolution. It meant that I was going to get undergraduate training in biology and in geology. And graduate school went into biological anthropology. And I was going to do human evolution. And at that time, there were probably more people who were studying human fossils than there were human fossils. Lori was undaunted, but to focus her graduate studies, she needed to find a subject that wasn't quite so popular. She zeroed in on the lemurs of Madagascar. My rationale was because, oh my God, look at all these lemurs. There are so many extinct lemurs and we know so little about it. And there is absolutely nobody, nobody studying them. And that's when I started reading about the Malagasy lemur fossils, the so-called giant lemurs in Madagascar, and that, that got hooked. And then I went to Madagascar, and I got further hooked. So that's the story. So at the time that I first went to Madagascar, it was me 
It was Ian Tattersall. A paleoanthropologist then studying the ecology and taxonomy of the lemurs of Madagascar, basically how different species of lemurs relate to each other and their environment, who later became a curator with the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And it was Bill Jenders. A paleontologist who was also studying lemurs and building his own dissertation around them, and who later continued that research while teaching at Stony Brook University in New York. And uh, from there, it's grown. The field became increasingly popular over the years. Now... I'm part of a big cohort and a growing cohort, including a lot of young Malagasy students and now faculty, now people who are actually experts on primate paleontology. And part of that change is because over the past 50 years, Lori and other researchers began to increasingly partner with Malagasy schools and universities. Lori says that it's important to understand how to collaborate. I've gotten to work with a lot of Malagasy people and the degree to which they have taught me rather than me teaching them has been absolutely extraordinary. The other thing I think that is important to remember when we work with Malagasy people or with people from any um, country which have grown up without the language of science, the language of science being English, maybe some French, but mostly English, is that you try writing a paper in your third language. You're going to need help. That work culminated in 2022 with the publication Malagasy Nature. For the first time, the Madagascar-based journal focused solely on work led by Malagasy researchers. Lori wanted to make sure the young researchers would get first author credit, which is critical recognition in the academic field, denoting the person who contributed most to the whole process of study, work, and writing that led to the article. And they are marvelous. They're eye-opening marvelous. The projects, um, the people that I worked with, the projects were wonderful. Part of Lori's commitment to young researchers is because she had her own mentors on her journey. As a young researcher, she had been studying museum collections while she started a family. Then, in the early 1980s... I was really ready to go back to Madagascar, and so I called... Elwyn Simons, the legendary director of the then Duke Primate Center, who created what was then called the Division of Fossil Primates. His field manager, Prithijit Chatrath, was nearby when Elwyn took the call. And he apparently turned to Prithijit Chatrath and said, Who's Laurie Godfrey? But he looked me up and said, oh, well, this person did a doctoral dissertation on the giant lemurs. Ultimately, they decided, okay, I could join their team. And that's how that started. Elwin led 15 trips to Madagascar between 1983 and 2008. Over those years, the team collected thousands of subfossils and other materials that were cataloged. And so lots of the bones that you see are, in fact, bones that were collected on expeditions that the early ones that I, I went on. At that time, many of the fossils the team collected were in northern and southwestern Madagascar. They were found mostly in sinkholes and caves. I was not, I was not a caver at the time, but if there was a fossil in that hole and I could reach it by climbing down this ladder, I would do it. <music> 
as she continued to work in the fossilized history of Madagascar, the living world around her never lost its fascination, particularly when it came to our lemur poster child, the ringtail lemurs. When you see ringtail lemurs, what you see is the animal that's most likely to be seen in captivity at zoos and on the television. <laughs> I mean, maybe some shifakas, maybe some mass lemurs, but it's mostly ringtail lemurs. It is the token lemur because um, it does well enough in captivity and in zoos to be easy to actually uh, breed, reproduce in captivity. But where do you need to go if you want to see ring-tailed lemurs in the wild in Madagascar? Lori has been there and knows exactly where you need to go. Well, you would have to go to perhaps the most inhospitable habitat of Madagascar. It's the so-called spiny thicket. It stretches across the southern part of Madagascar. It's scrubland. It's extremely dry. Places that get around 400 millimeters of rainfall per year, full of succulent plants, full of baobab trees. As you go south and further south in Madagascar, you get little um, ground cover, you get little in the way of grasses. So it's even too dry to support savanna, grassland savanna. Ring-tailed lemurs are not the only animals thriving in this unlikely place. That includes other primates, that are either restricted to this area or very comfortable in this area, and that includes some mouse lemurs, some dwarf lemurs, varroshifakas, um, and you've got some sportive lemurs in the southern part of Madagascar. But you have other animals that are endemic, which means that they live only in Madagascar, like certain tenrecs that you find in the south. Um, these are spiny an- animals so there's spiny forests, there's spiny animals. Um, there are some rodents uh, that are uh, that live in the southern part of Madagascar. There are, and there are some that used to live there, but don't anymore. So figuring out extinction is another part of Lori's research, and it includes studying the habitats of Madagascar, which are something Lori marvels at. Madagascar is extremely diverse environmentally, so you have everything from humid forests, from very cold, um, high elevation sites to to lowland sites. From the eastern part of Madagascar, you have humid forests, then you have subhumid forests, then you have dry deciduous forests, and you have what's called succulent woodland. You've got some high canopy forests. With all that environmental diversity, why did so many different animals become extinct? And why have some survived? And why is their existence so fragile? Why do we still have lemurcata? That lemurcata is endangered, and the smaller ones are endangered now. And the list of animals that Lori has studied that have already become extinct is unfortunately extensive, but also fascinating. Lori has studied what these animals have in common. Yeah. We don't have Megalatopus. We don't have Paleoprophylagus. We don't have Archelemur, Hadropithecus. We don't have Pachylemur, and we don't have Mesopropithecus, and all of these animals were animals that were sympatric, or they lived in the same habitats as, as uh, ring-tailed lemurs. And you might think, well, it's because the ring-tails, they're hardy, and they come down to the ground, and they can get around, and, you know, if there are gaps, they can more easily, they can maybe have larger habitats, et cetera, et cetera. All of these animals, virtually all, except for the very little mouse lemurs, 
and down to the ground. So if you look at the animals that became extinct, and it's not just just the large-bodied lemurs, but it's also, oh, you have an extinct crocodile, you have all the pygmy hippopotamuses, different species from any of the hippos that are alive today. There were some carnivores in Madagascar that are, again, unique to Madagascar. They're called cryptoprocs. You actually have lots of bones of those animals there at the lemur center. I can't leave out elephant birds that probably weighed um, about, well, 800 kilograms for the largest of them. An animal called Varombe, which in Malagasy means big bird, reminds you of Sesame Street, right? But this big bird was literally a huge flightless bird. And if you translate, I guess, kilograms to pounds, it would be what, around 1,750 pounds, something like that. There were smaller elephant birds, but they were still big and Basically, all the giant lemurs, the so-called giant lemurs, any, anything more than around 20 pounds, weighing more than about 20 pounds, went extinct. The largest of the giant lemurs was an animal that was not in the southwest, and it may have been around, oh, I guess around 350 pounds, maybe 300 pounds. It was in the central part of Madagascar. The largest of the large-bodied lemurs in the southwest was still very large at around 150 pounds. That was the larger species of megalodipus. This is a smaller species, too. Um, So it's large-bodied animals that went extinct. And if you think what they have in common, it's certainly not their habits because they do all sorts of things. It's not the fact that they stick in trees because they didn't, right? What they do have in common is that most large-bodied animals have longer generation times. They take longer to grow and to reproduce, and therefore they're not as resilient when it comes to any kind of environmental perturbation or any kind of environmental threat. You know, this may be a temporary thing because it's happening to um, those smaller-bodied animals. And there were some smaller animals that did become extinct um, as well. But mostly it's the large ones. And I think it has to do with what we scientists call their life history or how they grow and reproduce. These questions about extinction continue to fascinate Lori and other researchers as they consider what it means for present day survival. What impact might climate change have on life history? And what makes an animal species more resilient to these kinds of extinction events? And what can that teach us? The Duke Lemur Center is proud to collaborate with researchers like Lori as we work to study, care, and protect lemurs, our planet's most endangered group of mammals. Lori's work with the Lemur Center, literally over decades, has furthered our understanding of lemurs and their habitat, as well as deepening our knowledge of their past, which is, incidentally, the focus of the Lemur Center's Natural History Museum. We are so grateful to Lori for taking the time to speak with us about her research and the ring-tailed lemurs we all know and love, and we look forward to sharing more of Lori's insights in the future. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. 
A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt. And Megan. And all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center.